Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Milt Thompson from Dixie Four-Wheel Drive in St. George, Utah and Moab, Utah. So Milt and I have known each other since the mid-90s when uh, I was living in Cedar City. And of course, Milt was down in St. George with Dixie and part of the Four-Wheel Drive Club down there. He's opened a lot of trails, if not most of the trails in uh, Sand Hollow. And we'll discuss life off-road and four-wheel drive and Milt's history. Okay, Milt, go ahead and uh, let's get started. Where did you grow up? I grew up in St. George, born and raised. At, um, back when St. George was oh, around 5,000 people, as I recall. It, uh, kind of about the size of Moab now. It, uh, little out-of-the-way town. Interstate didn't go through there then. It, uh, it was hotter than hell there. Still is, depending on the time of year. But uh, yeah, growing up as a kid there, very small town, knew most everybody. Lots of places to chase and play down there as a kid growing up. So how did you? How did your life off road get started? I don't know if there's one thing I can identify as starting it. I remember as a very young kid, uh, my dad had an old Jeep, an old flat fender with a three-speed column shift. And I remember going for a ride with Mulder Brother years, years, years ago, and down where Dixie State University is now. We got down that way. Unfortunately, we had to walk home. <laughs> the, the old Jeep wasn't in great shape and hadn't been kept up and quit, and we had to walk back, and they had to go get something and tow it back. But uh, that was my earliest recollection of a Jeep ride. A few years later, Dad had a quite a collection of odds and ends up in the backyard at our house where we lived. I remember toting the wagon up. It was when I got big enough to lift his toolbox in the wagon and pull it up the hill to the backyard and started working on uh, things. I'd take them apart, see how they worked. My younger brother was prone to breaking the lights and the windows out of things, but... Uh, <laughs> I took to liking to uh, working on them. I think the first rig that, well, we had a 53 Ford pickup that I remember we got running as kids. 
about 10 years old, somewhere in there. And so whenever the folks would leave, we would go start it and drive it around up in the backyard and through the neighborhood on the dirt roads. So it sounds to me like they didn't know that you had it running? Well, we didn't think they knew we had it running. But the big figure eights out in the open field probably gave them a pretty good clue that <laughs> something was up. <laughs> but uh, And then we took a uh, 46 Studebaker half-ton pickup was the first rig that I built for off-road, to speak of. And I look back now and would like to shoot myself because we cut that truck up, stripped the body, welded brackets to it. That uh, was where I learned to weld was on that old project with an old Westinghouse buzz box. We cut it up, shortened the frame. I think it was five feet axle center to axle center. And uh, welded a frame on it and had an old fiberglass chair that we bolted to that. It was the only seat on it. And we'd take that out in the, the yamps and the boonies and, and run it until we'd get it stuck someplace that we couldn't get it out. And we'd have to have Dad bring a truck out and, and pull us loose. Back in the day, our house was about the last house in town. And I-15 didn't exist there on the eastern part of St. George. And so from our house clear out to that Black Mesa was nothing but open ground and some dirt roads. So that's where we started wheeling in the beginning was out in that area. So you've seen a big change in St. George. I always call it Utah's Orange County with everybody that's moving in there and all the businesses. And, and I mean, it's just like going and being down in Orange County, California, you know, to me, but it's just a lot smaller. Yeah, it's it's grown immensely. Growing up as a kid, when we'd uh, we'd hike up on the Red Hill, what we called the Red Hill north of town, and uh, there's the fishing pond up there now, but that was a swimming hole, irrigation pond up there, and we knew where all the shade was, and they had dirt ditches along the street, so we'd go up without our shoes, wade in the ditches, and then stand in the shade, and if we had to wait for more than two vehicles on the boulevard to get across, it was a traffic jam. <laughs> it... Uh, We'd shoot by the old uh, desert kitchen cafe and then walk the pipeline up the hill because the pipeline was cool, had water running through it. And we'd go up on the hill and go swimming or fishing or whatever we wanted to do that day. But uh, that's what we'd do for fun up there. And like I say, it was it was a very small town at the time. And um, it was a lot of fun as a kid growing up. Got a lot of fond memories from it. Now, I... When I'm home in the St. George shop, I try to travel home at off times during the day, and I always go to a stoplight across the boulevard because the traffic is insane. And um, I'm not sure what the current population is. I know it's over 100,000 now and growing rapidly. It seems like every time there's a major natural disaster in California, major earthquake, we get a lot of influx of people moving into southern Utah, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's good for business, crowds things up. But we've met some great people that have moved up. And on the flip side, we've met some that we wish would go back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of my friends have moved into the area, off-road community. And I think a lot of that had to do with Lance Clifford, um, the old pirate 4x4 yeah. originator. When he, you know, he was a real estate agent. Yeah. And he moved there, 
moved over to Hurricane, I believe. Yeah, Hurricane, and then uh, he's been he's been selling houses to everybody that he knows. Yeah, I mean, my son's over there now, and Larry McRae, and, yeah, and Ryan, and all sorts of those. Oh, everybody. I mean, I even Dave Wong, one of our competitors, mm-hmm. has just moved over there. And Sand Hollow, I can remember all of us going out to Sand Hollow, you down in, in St. George, and then me with Color Country up in Cedar uh-huh. City. And we'd go, we went there for the sand dunes. Yeah. Because we had three peaks to play with and up in Cedar, so we didn't even think about rock crawling there. And the sand dunes and Hurricane were a lot closer than Coral Pink. Yeah. And uh, those were my early memories was, was that area and going in there. But uh, I can remember going on a couple of runs with you where you took us on some of the trails out there. And it wasn't, I don't think, so much in the rocks, but more in like the Arizona Strip, but Mm -hmm. maybe more of the Utah part of that. There was a couple of pretty good climbs that we went on. I don't even remember all of them. It was so long ago. That was was enjoyable. But to get back to what we were talking about, your your youth and growing up, what uh, what was the first car? That you drove, that you you know, say as a licensed driver, that you were able to uh, to commandeer. I think the first car that I had that was I would consider mine. I had bought a 1950 Chevy two door hardtop deluxe for twenty five dollars. Wow! It was sitting off of Fourth East by the old Moss home, and I can't even remember who owned it at the time. I bought it from somebody and bought it cheap because it didn't run. Went through the 216 motor it had in it, the old splash crank, and fixed it up, and that was my first car that I I owned and drove. I had it up until the time I, just before I got married, I actually sold that car to buy my wife's diamond ring. I think I sold it for $400 when I did. Oh, nice markup. Um, well, unfortunately, a friend of mine is a car collector in, in St. George. Uh, showed up at the shop one day driving a 1950 Deluxe hardtop. He had just bought it at the Scottsdale auction. And I says, Dennis, where did you get that? And he says, you know what this is? And I said, yeah, I used to own one. He says, I stole this thing. He says, I only gave $19,000 for it. <laughs> I about died. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it. Uh, I had put a, a 283 V8 in mine with a, a three-speed with an overdrive on it. And I drove that all through high school. But, you know, that old car on the highway, of course, octane and fuel was a lot better then. At 75 mile an hour on the freeway, I got 30 miles a gallon in that car. Wow. It was a great little car. And my wife off time says, you know, <laughs> wish you'd kept that car. <laughs> she, over the years that we've been married, she lost that ring somehow. And we, we got her another one. But uh, so that was the first car that I actually owned that I did have a dune buggy I had built out of the leftovers of a 64 Volkswagen bus that all my sisters had learned to drive, and each one of them had at least one turn wrecking it. So it was pretty hammered by the time I got my hands on it. And we took the front axle out of it, the transaxle out of the back, and I made a chassis out of uh, galvanized pipe. (laughs) Not the best thing to learn. Welding welding that galvanized? Weld on. You want to do that out where it's windy and it blows that away because it'd make you pretty sick sometimes. 
welded that old dune buggy up and we run that all through high school too. It was, uh, that's where we started running out to sand, hurricane sand dunes is what we called it then. Yeah. Back in, oh, I want to say 72 when I first started uh, driving out there with the buggy. And we had a lot of fun, got a lot of places with, but nothing like what you could do with a Jeep now. Right. Talk about your family a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, my family, if you go back to the, like my great-grandfathers, were sent to St. George by Brigham Young to settle. Wow. And um, they got there and either just never left or couldn't get out or something, hard to say. They were sent down with the uh, original group of settlers that Brigham Young sent down. My dad's side and my actually my dad's mother, her grandfather was James G. Blake, who was a secretary to Brigham Young. And he sent was sent down with that original group as well. Wow. And then just recently, we've checked some history on my mother's side. Uh, my great-grandfather on my mother's side was originally from Pennsylvania, who got to Utah on his way to the California gold rush. And uh, they stopped in Ogden to fix wagons and and get stocked up in one thing or another. And during the months they were there, he kind of fell for this young lady in Ogden. And they started out for California and decided, you know, the gold's not worth it. He went back and got married and uh, lived in up in the the Farmington area is what is Farmington, Utah now. Right. And in reading their history, he had a big, really nice piece of property. It turned out it's the same property that Lagoon uh, is built on now. The Lagoon Water Park, right. Uh, but he was called to uh, the Southern Mission by the church leaders and went down and settled in Harrisburg, uh, which was a, a rough, rough life for him. I would imagine. Um, and so when it started finally getting up and going in Harrisburg, he got called uh, by President Taylor at the time as part of the group that went down through Hole in the Rock, traveled through Hole in the Rock down to Bluff, Utah, and settled there for a period of time and eventually moved down into Arizona, uh, Alpine, and then uh, years later ended up back in uh, Paraguna, Utah, where he, he eventually passed away. Okay. So he made a... He made a lot of travel then. Yeah, time. he he That's, traveled a, a bunch, and that uh, wasn't easy travel oh, back then. No, it. Uh, if you get on YouTube and look at the uh, Impossible Journey One about Hole in the Rock, I think Bleep and Jeep did a, a three part video of of Hole in the Rock and gives a lot of history. And watching the two of those together, one after the other, gives you a pretty good respect for what those poor pioneers went through going through that travel. I'm always amazed. At when we travel, you know, I travel the country a lot, putting on events all back and forth across country. And I see all these beautiful roads that we drive on now. And we complain about potholes and <laughs> irregular road surfaces. Yeah. And then you look at some of the trails that, that, that the pioneers came across on. You can still see the, tr- the wagon tracks in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them up in, in Idaho, where I lived for a while. It's amazing what they did and how they did it and that the fortitude that they had much more than what we have now. We were, we are so spoiled. Oh yeah. It, with technology and, you know, technology is advancing of course, and every, all the youngest generations even have more of it. 
they just don't build like they used to. Yeah. I tell my kids that you think you got it tough, you look back and read what some of your ancestors went through. It uh, they they were stout, hearty people. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it uh, my grandfather on my mother's side who was his father that went down through Hole in the Rock and my grandfather was born in Alpine, Arizona in eighteen eighty four. He was a blacksmith. As the wagon started to fade and the cars came in, he became a mechanic. And so I look back on some of my ancestry and it, it helps me understand kind of where I've come from and what's led me to some of the things I do. He was he was able to what we call pivot now. Yeah. Which is really important, you know, especially through this COVID thing. Oh yeah. We had to pivot a lot with mm-hmm. our business. And I, I know a lot of other people with, with businesses especially in entertainment where we found out we were essentially non-essential, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like, okay, now what are we going to do instead of sitting for so long? How was, how was your business during, during the uh, COVID? You know, we come over here in February of this year and mostly my youngest son, they were having a baby and uh, he needed to go home to St. George where her doctor was. And so we come over so they could go home, but that was just prior to COVID hitting. And so when the COVID thing hit, you know, nobody knew what was really going to happen. And it made it sound like, you know, two out of every 10 were going to die. Just, you know, and so we said, you know what, you guys go home, stay in my house because nobody's been in it for a week or two. We know what's good. You guys stay there and we'll stay here and and run this till things get sorted out. And we're still here. (laughs) (laughs) And they're still in your house. And they're still in my house there, which, which is all right. I mean... It's been good here, but during the whole COVID thing, we were classified as an essential business because we're automotive repair, and I've been busy. I've worked every single day. We haven't missed a day's work through the entire thing, and I've had some days that I've had to sub, you know, work out to other shops and recommend other places they take them because I wasn't able to physically get them in because I was backed up. Yeah, and you right now I notice you have no staff. It's just uh, you and your wife. Yeah, it's we've had employees in the past here. It's it's been difficult, especially the unemployment benefits that they're paying all this extra money. Nobody wants to work. People aren't willing to work. No, they can sit at home. Uh, and make we've money. we've put out a couple of you know shots for for employees, and in a six month period of time, we've had one response. Wow. Uh, they weren't somebody I could hire, but only one response. And so it's been, it would be nice to have somebody that was passionate about the sport of off-roading and, and with some background in that. Uh, but Moab is quite an expensive place to live, a little bit difficult that way. But I would love to eventually find somebody that we could train in to either manage and, and run the shop, get some employees here, make it solid. And make that work. But like I say, as far as the COVID goes, we've stayed, in fact, both shops. Our St. George stop, I talked to them this morning. They scheduled 16 new jobs today. Wow. A lot of people that are, are panned up are has enough. i got to get out. I'm going to go do something. Wheeling, off-roading, and that has been a, a really popular thing and gotten more so with people being cooked, cooped up. They want to get out. Yeah, I noticed that when we, when we got back to an event schedule, all of our events have been better than previous years, especially on the West Coast, mm-hmm. or what we call our Western Series. 
And I really think it's because people have been, you know, cooped up and they just want to get out and do something. And even though we have COVID protocols and we recommend everybody wear masks, you know, we, we don't, we don't require it. We don't say you have to, if you don't wear a mask, you got to leave. You know, we have extra hand wash stations and, you know, things like that. But the other thing is we don't allow anybody to shame each other because they're either wearing a mask or not wearing a mm-hmm. mask. Yeah. Because that's, that's one of the things I see really bad right now going on. Is, you got to have respect for other people. Correct. We, there's a big lack of respect in the United States right now, unfortunately. Yeah. That's true. So how did the process go from high school, building cars? Did you get into, when did, you, when did off-road become kind of a, mace, a mainstay of your life? That probably didn't happen until, as far as a mainstay, until probably the later 80s. After high school, I did work for a garage downtown, full-time as mechanic, up until the time I left and served a mission for the church. And that was interesting because I even fixed some cars while I was down in Florida. Oh, that, is that <laughs> it, where you said? I served in, in uh, the, the Florida-Fort Lauderdale mission years ago, back in 76 and 7. And then when I come home, I uh, went to work for Tunex, worked for Tunex, doing their carburetors and uh, tuning and, and stuff, worked for them for a period of time until that we could see the writing on the wall, the guy that owned the company wasn't paying his franchise. <laughs> and we knew that wasn't going to last long. And uh, so I'd work for another gas station, different things, and ended up as a, a warehouse operator for uh, more business forms for most of a year. And that occasionally would get me into trouble because when I get done with all my jobs in a warehouse and I had free time, you had to do something to stay busy. And, uh, I had a bad habit of working on my own equipment that was supposed to go to the maintenance department. And, uh, every now and again, they'd catch me working on the forklifts and say, that's not your job. But, you know, maintenance had been, had a work order for two weeks, hadn't done anything. Of course. (laughs) And so, it, uh, I finally uh, moved on from there. My wife had a, a real hankering to move back up by her folks. She was from Riverton, Utah. Begrudgingly, I gave in, and we moved to Riverton. And uh, right at the time of which was the uh, recession of 1980, went through five jobs in eight months. Would get a job, go to work, work for a couple of weeks, show up in the morning, and the big sign on the door saying closed. Wow. Uh, went through a number of jobs that way. Did a little bit of everything, and uh, last job up there was working for an excavating company. Worked for them. I'd been with them for a couple of months and was running a crew, digging mainline water and sewer and, and putting stuff together for them. And then when the weather was bad or couldn't work, they'd have me work on their equipment, which wouldn't have been too bad other than it was in the garage at his house on a gravel floor <laughs> which was not the best of conditions but you know it was still work it was work did what we could do i was working uh, then for five dollars an hour and we were about starved to death and i recall it being like february and my wife rolled over and said you know i think we should go back to saint george and I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning and started packing. <laughs> <laughs> you were ready. And, uh, we moved back to St. George. Went into business for myself at the time. It was actually in the custom woodworking business. 
I had bought some equipment and was making payments on it, and and uh, we went into the the custom woodworking and furniture restoration. Wow. Did a lot of antique restoration work, and we did that for fourteen years. That's why you're so good at detail, then. Uh, it's I think part of that's where that come from is is you know fussy and and figuring out how to make things work, how to make things fit, because a lot of times that old stuff um, you know was missing pieces or broke up and you have to figure out what and I think the oldest piece we ever did was a spinning wheel from the 16th century for an attorney that had a, a really old European spinning wheel and we had to make we actually had to hand forge some of the metal parts which having a had a grandfather that was a blacksmith come in handy because I'd learned a little bit from him that's and, awesome um, I love blacksmithing I just a couple of years ago I took a uh a folk school class for a week doing blacksmithing. Mm -hmm. And even though it was a basic introductory blacksmithing, um, eventually when we settle down and I retire and find a place to live, I'm going to create a shop. And once one of the things I'm going to do is get a forge and an anvil and a bunch of, bunch of metal and start beating on things. Yeah. It's uh, it can be a lot of fun. And, uh, and you know, so you know, take your frustration out on something <laughs> rather than yelling at somebody. Yeah, I I do have some of my grandfather's a few of his old tools that I still have to this day, and actually still use some of them I have in my toolbox out here. Well, that's awesome. But um, so yeah, so we spent, like I say, about fourteen years, and the entire time of being in the furniture business, I was doing automotive on the side to supplement. The furniture business, because it wasn't a real lucrative business at the time. I didn't have really any competition in it. Uh, we'd do things like we'd wo weave the uh, the cane seats in the chairs, hand weave them. Wow. Uh, the rawhide seats, the old Pioneer stuff. Uh, so I got a chance to learn a lot of things. We did the, which is not politically correct anymore, we restored the uh, Civil War cannon, the... the uh, college had okay the dixie rebels that they used to pull it in the parades and cannon and the case on and and all that that i went through and, and made some of the new spokes in it restored the wagon wheels so they could pull it in the parades and do everything and then when we get done with it ever after they just pull it on a wagon and then somehow it mysteriously got damaged and disappeared from the college um how long ago did that happen oh it's been been a few years back okay there, it was it was a little suspicious of how it went. They, somebody said they somebody had put something in it, blown the barrel up. Well, I can guarantee that didn't happen because why we had that cannon, <laughs> we shot that cannon. <laughs> <laughs> and when you shoot one of those off with a quarter pound of powder in it at midnight in the middle of town, <laughs> you wake some people. It up. excites people. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing we didn't get caught. We'd probably gone to jail. So. Yeah, during the, the whole interim of, of doing woodworking, um, I was doing automotive on the side. During that time, I had uh, I had bought a 66 MGB convertible out of a wrecking yard. And I remember towing it home from Santa Clara and coming down what they call Graveyard Hill in Santa Clara. And the one brake caliper was off, so I'd stuck a piece of wood in the caliper so it wouldn't spit the piston. And the back brakes were smoking, and I remember my wife was towing me in our, she, we had a 68 El Camino at the time, 
and telling and, and we got home and she was in tears. She was so mad. <laughs> she didn't want me to buy that and I did anyway. And I put it back together and I run it for several years. I remember being on a dirt road. I had come back from Cedar City and I wanted to pull I pulled off at the Browse exit and went off the south side and down into Ash Creek. There's a dugway, goes down into Ash Creek. Well, I had never been down there, so I want to drive down. So I drive to the bottom of this in a 66 MG convertible. And I remember looking at from the bottom up going, I hope I can get out of here. Because <laughs> I could feel the bottom scraping on rocks and things as I got down in there. And fortunately, I had a limited slip differential, and I very carefully picked my way back up that dugway and, and got out and got it home. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to keep going off road, I really need to find something different than this convertible. So I started looking. I found an old military Jeep. Guy had it in his backyard. Flat fender? Flat fender, 1942. Uh, it was military. Still had the machine gun mount in the frame. I think his name was Ralph Schwartzer. He was an Arizona Highway Patrol officer, lived in uh, there by St. George. And I remember at the time, he wanted $650 for this Jeep, which I look back now and it was way too much. And I had $600. He was kind of holding firm to it. His wife took me aside when he wasn't listening. She said, if you'll buy this Jeep, I'll pay the extra 50 bucks. (laughs) She wanted it out of her backyard because there was an extra body laying on its side and they had the thing built. It was a doghouse. They had it all around as part of a doghouse. Like a dummy, I ended up buying it, started piecing it together, and uh, got it up and running, had the flathead four-cylinder in it, had the old T-84 transmission, and got it all up and running, and and uh, got it licensed, and go out with the family in it, and we come down off of, uh, up above the, uh, that industrial park over by Hurricane, where Walmart distribution is now. Yep. You can drive up that ridge above and look down into Quail Lake. There's a, a road that goes up the top of that. And we had gone up and stopped and watched and or looked and, and on our way back down. And that old T-84 was notorious for jumping out of gear. And it did. And when they jump out of gear, a lot of times it'll chip a tooth off of first gear. And so it's like clunkety-clunkety-clunkety-clunk. So that's what happened with that. And I um, hunted around. I couldn't find a, another T-84. And... I did hunt up, found a, a T-14 that a, a guy had. It was bullet to a, a, a Buick V6. So I ended up doing some work for the, the guy that had that, did some trade work and got the uh, motor and transmission everything from him. Was that uh, one of the old odd fires? Uh, it was an old odd fire. That was a great it, uh, it was a 231. It wasn't a 225 Dauntless, but okay. it, was, it was an odd fire 231. And uh, so I traded for it, and part of the trade is MacArthur Welding that was next door to where I had my shop needed a motor for their welder, so it was kind of a three-way trade. And my motor was still good, and so I took the motor out of the Jeep I had and put it in one of their Hobart welders because it bolted in place of that Continental motor, a few modifications, and uh, bolted that in so they could continue using that welder. Then the other guy that had the other shop, we we got the trade all done, and I uh, got that V6 put in that Jeep and with the 14, and it uh, made a pretty good little Jeep out of it that we run it for for a long time until we uh, 
<clears throat> killed it deer hunting. <laughs> that's not the one that's on the, uh, that was on the, the old on sign? On the sign? No. Okay. No. Actually, the, the one, my original Jeep is actually still on the road. My uh, wow. second son, Tyson, has got it in Richfield. Oh, nice. We'd, we'd been hunting deer out to uh, gen, what they call General Steam. I don't know if you've ever been out that way. I don't know that name. General Steam was started back in the 30s, I believe. Kind of an eccentric old guy that had bought a bunch of equipment, different things from Hoover Dam when they had built down there. And when they got done, and there's a lot of equipment and old stuff around that they were getting rid of. And he bought a bunch of that old lathes and mills and uh, old... And he had hauled steam boilers and big hammer deals and a bunch of stuff up in the mountains that is, uh, oh, it was north, northwest of uh, Gunlock in Vail, Utah, okay. kind of up in the mountains. And the guy's original intent is there was an old iron mine up there. He was going to mine his own iron and process it. And he was going to build cars. <laughs> yeah. And that there, is kind of there the was hard way about doing that. some big buildings up there at one time, some pretty good sized buildings, and there was a lot of old Studebakers and stuff he had hauled in there. There's still a few iron remnants and stuff up there. The old buildings have since been burned down and kind of tore up, and the old cars have been hauled away. And but up in General Steam, you could actually go to the top of the mountain and then down off the south side. And we had gone out there deer hunting and got into some really heavy brush and off camber sliding down. So we knew it wasn't to go back up. It was go clear out the bottom. And at the bottom, there was a large wash. And we were trying to get up out the other side. And back in the day, it was open differentials and still had the, the quarter ton full float rear end in it. Well, we ended up breaking an axle, breaking a second axle. <laughs> Blowing up the motor. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Several things that uh, my wife informed me that she says, next time you do something like that, you just shoot it between the headlights and leave it. <laughs> but we went back in and uh, winched it up out of there with hand winches and actually had to cut down one or two trees to get it out. Uh oh. Uh, it was back in the day for that was a big no-no but we we got it out uh hauled it home and uh ended up rebuilding it we put uh, cj7 axles under it from uh, a quadratech 7 that had the offset rear end in it had okay. the, that uh quadratech full-time four-wheel drive but the offset was great for the dana 18 transfer case yep and so we put that in, and then I bought a motor out of a, I want to say it was an 89 S10, little 4.3. The guy, had, I knew a guy in Canab that had bought the truck for body parts and stuff. It had been broadsided, and he bought it for a little uh, S10 Cyclone he was putting back together. And so he had the motor and everything. I, I bought the motor and the harness and the computer and, and all that and put that fuel-injected V6 in that little Jeep. Nice. Behind a uh, Muncie 465. The only problem with those is you have no driveline length. With nobody made an adapter short enough to make it work, and right. so we made an adapter. Oh, nice! And uh, Novak Industries makes an adapter for the 435 to the 18 and 20. Uh, I gave them that design. 
Nice. That's the original awesome. prototype is is still in that Jeep, still running to this day. And its overall length from bell housing to in the transfer case is one inch longer than stock mm-hmm. with a 465 in it. So they gave you a little bit of driveline. And uh, give me some driveline length. And uh, But I run that Jeep for probably 100,000 miles after we did that build on it. And Does it then, still have the 4.3 in it now? Still got the same 4.3 in it. We've changed the body. We wore the body clear out on it. And so my son put another body, and we helped him. And, and so he's still running that little Jeep today. That's awesome. So when did, uh, when did Dixie take life? Dixie took life. We run the furniture business for about 14 years, doing automotive on the side. Uh, we sat down one day and put a pencil to it, and we were doing better on side work than we were full-time in the woodwork. And went, well, this is kind of stupid. <laughs> And then we had our insurance company because I was doing some automotive work at the same shop as the the furniture shop. They said, we won't insure you with a woodworking shop and automotive in the same location. We just won't do it. We'd never had a claim, never had a problem, but they absolutely refused. And and after we looked at numbers and stuff and thought, you know what, it's probably time to, to let the furniture go. And so we phased it out and went into listed as Thompson Repair. We worked for a couple of years as Thompson Repair, did general automotive, and but our business license listed everything up to horse trading. I mean, it was... The city at one point tried to make us buy two business licenses. And it's like... Uh, for, one, for one location. I'm one guy working in one location. Yeah, but you're doing, you know, different things. And I said, well, Gibson's down the road, so sporting good and groceries and diapers and... How many business licenses do they have? Well, that's different. No, it's not. They have a lot more employees, but they're doing all that under one roof. I said, what difference is it? Anyway, we uh, finally got sorted out in the city, went away and left me alone finally um, after a few threats that I'd made. (laughs) So, but we, eventually I had built this little Jeep that we'd been running for some time and I'd experiment and say, you know, if I do this, this would work better. And so we'd do a shackle reversal on it, and it steered better. And then, of course, the 9-inch drums were horrible. And when I went to the other axles on it, I had disc brakes up front, so I built discs to go on the back. And uh, we eventually put 12-inch discs all the way around, so it stopped really good. But I started having people come in, well, can you do that to my Jeep? Well, yeah, I think so. And I was getting more and more of that, and I got to the point where I was getting actually quite a bit of four-wheel drive work. And we got to kicking it around one day, and he said, you know, probably ought to change the name to Dixie Four-Wheel Drive. Because back in the 70s, the building that we were working out of, the, the location we're at in St. George now, was a building that when my parents passed away, my dad passed away last, but... My two brothers and myself inherited that piece of property, and my sisters inherited uh, the house and the other land and the insurance policy, whatever, policy and stuff. But So I eventually ended up buying the two brothers out of the, the property there because they didn't have any real interest in it, and, and so I bought them out of it. But in uh, years before, when my dad was alive, we rented that building out. Originally, that building that sat on that location we manufactured roof tile, the bar tile brand roof tile. It was a cement shingle tile. And as a little kid, I worked with Dad up there 
uh, my job was to shovel sand in the hopper and get it ready for the next batch of cement. And I was probably more more grief than good some days for him, but uh, but it was fun to work with him and and watch him. I have fond memories of of seeing him making that tile and and up in the building there. So after they closed that, he sold that business years later to one of my uncles in Cedar who had a block plant and they had it for a little while and then I don't know whatever you know kind of went defunct. So after that, Dad just used that as a rental property rented it to Wetzel and Hawthorne. Uh, they made sleeping bags and tents and stuff, a satellite building for them. And then later he just rented different outfits. Um, he rented it out to a, a guy that was running a garage out of it, old uh, Harold and Larry Musgrave that, that rented it for probably 13 years from us. And I got to know them quite well. And at one point, Larry had moved up from California originally, and and he told me one day he wanted me to change, asked me if I could change the writing on the roof. He used to say Thompson Bar Tile on the roof, spelled out in the white tile on the red roof. And uh, so he was thinking that he was going to do Jeeps eventually and had it, me write Dixie four-wheel drive on the roof. Well, he never did do Jeeps and eventually got out of the automotive business. But you still own the building. And we still own the building, and, and it said Dixie four-wheel drive on the roof. And I thought, well, you know, be ashamed to waste that sign. <laughs> and so we changed the name to uh, Dixie four-wheel drive from Thompson Repair. And I think that was somewhere about, let's see, oh, in the early 90s, somewhere in there. So we changed over and copyrighted the name and made sure we had everything taken care of. That's when we changed the name over to Dixie Did they make you get a new business license? Well, or just the, change the name? We changed the name on the business license. Perfect. <laughs> when it when it come due again, so we've been Dixie Four Wheel Drive ever since then. I had customers from years previous that you know little old ladies that drove Buicks and stuff that. Would come in. So does it mean you're not going to work on my car anymore? And it's like, no, I'll still work on your car. I I had customers, sweet little old ladies. I just couldn't tell them no. I'd steal my old customers. In fact, we had a call two days ago. Somebody still asking about if we would take a side job on doing some woodwork. And it's like, wow, not a chance. No, <laughs> you, you can't afford me. <laughs> but uh, so I. I continue to take care of the my my old clientele that I'd had for years and years because I'd got to know them they were friends they were good people and so we've always tried to take care we we mainline now in in four-wheel drive not exclusively you know the occasional car or something that's broke down it's got to have something you know I get it more so here in Moab than uh, than over in St. George but because uh, there's not as many places to refer them to but but I told my guys some years back, I said, okay, rule is now, no more European stuff. If it can be avoided, I don't want any more Rolls Royce, no more Bentleys, uh, Lotus Lamborghinis. I used to work on a lot of those. And it's like, yeah, the answer's no. <laughs> don't want to do any more. Had a customer in here the other day with a Lamborghini. Beautiful car. But it wasn't for work. He was dropping, uh, he dropped a customer's Jeep off for him. Okay. And uh, he just, it brought his car by so we could look at it. 
Beautiful car. An older Lamborghini no, or a new one? It's a new one. Oh, geez. Nice, like nice car. Some cash. Yeah. <laughs> those are but, not cheap uh, cars. Beautiful car. But uh, fortunately, I don't have to work on those anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Although, you know, your, your, your shop rate would go up. Uh, yes, it, it would definitely go up if I was going to do those. I'd have to get different hoists. Mine don't go close enough to the ground to get on. Oh, true. With a Lambo. So you, uh, you something that you, you discussed earlier. You said your wife was from. I've now forgotten the name. Uh, Riverton. Riverton, and you were down here. How did the two of you meet? <laughs> Interesting story about that. Um, I tease her about being a mail order bride. Mail order bride. There we go. <laughs> Why I was in Florida serving missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My first missionary companion down there was a kid by the name of Randy Wall from Riverton, Utah. Fun, fun guy. Got to love him. He was he was great. And so we were together for about six months as companions in the mission field. He had a girlfriend at home in Riverton that was waiting for him when he come home off his mission. And he uh, wrote to her one day and says, Hey, my companion doesn't have anybody writing to him. You need to find somebody to write him. So anyway, it's like, oh, really, Randy Elder? <laughs> it, uh, anyway, so it wasn't for too long. There's three young women from up in the Riverton area that started writing me letters. And I'd been out for you know, a few months. We, uh, when we serve a mission, it was for two years. So anyway, I started getting letters and I'd respond to them. And, and to be honest with you, two of them were really flaky (laughs) or seemed really flaky. (laughs) So anyway, they kind of uh, puttered away, but my wife that was writing to me who I'd never met continued to write. And for some reason I kept writing. And so we wrote back and forth letters you know, each week for 18 months and got to know her very well through letters. And uh, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to marry this girl. And so when I come home off my mission... Sign unseen or did you and, get, a, uh, get some photos? Uh, she sent me a couple pictures. Okay. So um, when I come home off my mission in January of 78, um, she had come down to meet me. But when you come off a mission, you have to be released from your mission. And until then, you're still a missionary. I hadn't been released at the time. And she had stopped at my parents' house. And and we'd driven past the house on the way to get released. And she yelled, are you released yet? <laughs> and I said, no, we're on our way. She said, Damn you. <laughs> my wife grew up on a farming area. And that's a habit she's never broke. <laughs> She tends to cuss, but it's <laughs> part of what I love about her. I got released, and, and we dated. Um, we got married three months after I come home from my mission. Wow. And um, so I tease her about being a mail-order bride. That's awesome. And uh, But that's how we how we met. And how many kids do you have? I've got six. Six kids. It, um, she thought three would be a good number, and somehow we doubled that. We've got three boys and three girls. So you thought uh, three would be a good number. She thought three would be a good number. Apparently, and it, six ended up. It, being it ended up okay. six. We we kind of had our own basketball team, but uh, and they range from, well, like say, my oldest daughter, and then I've got a son, and then another daughter, and another daughter. 
and a son and a son. And uh, my oldest, or not oldest daughter, my second daughter is about six foot two. And my youngest daughter is about five two. Or right about that. Really? My mother-in-law is four foot eleven. <laughs> but your wife is not. No, she's <laughs> five seven about that. Or Well, she was before we started, you know, gravity started to settle us. Yeah, you get to a certain age and, and things just start to Yeah, happen. start to uh, recess. You get shorter and then... Like I always say, you, you never lose your hair or become bald. It just migrates. Yeah, it goes to different places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns gray, although you yeah. don't have much gray hair. Oh, I keep working on it. I, yeah. Yeah, I have hopes. My grandfather on my mother's side, supposedly that's where you get your hair genes from, uh, was 96 years old when he passed away and still had the majority of his hair. It was gray by then, but... He still had most of it. Well, I, I got really lucky that way because all the men on my mom's side were bald. Luckily, I took after my dad's side uh-huh. and got to keep my hair. It just came in gray early. Mm-hmm. You know, by my mid thirties, I was already starting. I was turning gray in areas. So, but now it's just all gray. But uh, okay, so you guys have. Uh, I remember the shop being small. When yeah. I first met you in the in the nineties was probably ninety six, ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Now you've got two very very nice buildings. Yeah, very. It's... I mean, you you come into your shops and and you can tell that you guys do high quality work. Well, we strive for that. It. Um, I can't say it's always been exactly what it should be. Uh, when you start hiring employees, occasionally you'll run into things that, and to be honest with you, we've sorted through some employees. Uh, the staff we have in St. George right now is a pretty solid crew. I'm really pleased with them. It, uh, we've got some, they have different ones, have strong suits in different areas that, uh, are really good because you know certain things like welding we've we've got a couple of the really good welders and um some of them that are really good in um you know wiring you know different things so and most most of them are are quite versed pretty much overall and uh, which is is really nice it's not always easy to find and like I say, we've had to sort through some over the years as we've gone, but uh, we've got a pretty solid staff over there. Some days I'm a little jealous. I've got five or six techs in St. George, two full-time sales guys, uh, general manager, my youngest son, who's a partner in the business as well, that's in sales. He can turn wrenches. He can weld uh, his his strong suits in customer relations sales and, and stuff. He does very well there. When they get loaded up over there, there's pretty good staff. Or if you have to push something or, or do something, you got you got a good group to work with. Over here, it's um, we're a little limited. It's my wife and I right now, and uh, like I say, hopefully we'll eventually find somebody that will will fit in and and can do what we need. But well, good luck with that. And if there's anything I can do when you start looking for when you're really serious about starting to look and stuff, let me know and I'll put the word out too. I got a yeah. pretty good network. Yeah, but, you know we. We find people for, for businesses yeah. all the time. And I say we're hoping that this COVID thing will will subside, that they'll get a handle on, you know, what direction we're going and a few things. November 4th. 
We, uh, yeah, I keep hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll instantly be gone. Yeah, I, magically, poof, and now it's just a flu again. <laughs> it, uh, oh, I guess shouldn't make light of it because, I mean, some people have been seriously ill from it and yes. things. And, but then again, some of the doctors I've talked to, and they say it's a 99% survivable, and some of the people that are dying from it, a common cold will kill them. Correct. So, you know, I'm not a medical expert by any means, so I'm not going to make any uh, state- statements on it. <laughs> I just know a lot of people that have lost their businesses, um, especially in the service industries, restaurants. It's been really tough for them. Breweries, um, people. You know, a lot of my friends in Northern California in that Placerville area have have really suffered um, with their businesses and lost their businesses. And it's... Uh, it. You know, it's just one of those things, but uh, I hope that everybody gets through it healthy and and gets through it, you know, and yeah, we're making light of, of it, but it is serious. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes, but I have yeah. a feeling that next year it'll just, you know, it'll, there'll be something new, of course. Yeah. Let's just hope it's not well, as bad. I'm, I'm hoping it gets back to where the people are without work and can get back to work and, and can, um, you know get lives back to somewhat normal and I agree and taking care of themselves and their families. So what's the, what's the future you think for Dixie four wheel drive? Well, it, uh, (laughs) I've had a lot of people say, man, I wish you'd come open a store and such and such. And it's like, I didn't really plan on expanding from St. George. (laughs) It just kind of, just kind of happened when, um, when Steve closed Moab Outpost here in Moab, sold his property, closed up here, um, Kevin, Kevin that was that actually owned this building that we bought, right? And that he he'd called and he knew our partner Albert Watt in Idaho, and I uh, says, hey, if you guys ever thought of coming to Moab, you know, now would be the time because Steve's closing his business and and we talked about it and. And thought, well, do we want to? Do we not want to? Do we, you know? And um, so we met as a board and, and sat down and, and discussed it and decided, you know, we probably ought to give it a shot. You know, Moab's a, a great area. And so we ended up uh, deciding, you know, we're going to pull the trigger on it. And and so it's been about three and a half years now. Now, my wife and I, when we decided that, yeah, this is a good idea, along with the rest of the board, didn't realize that she and I had spent the first year over here getting the building set up and getting things going. And and so we're back now. That's likelihood's going to be another year we're over here before um, things, you know, get back to normal and, and that. But but it's been good. I mean, it's a beautiful area and met a lot of great people over here. We We hope that if the the world gets somewhat back to normal and the nation gets back, you know, somewhat on track, we hope, and then hopefully get employees that we can uh, staff with because the exposure has been been great here. We've got a lot of customers from all over up and down the East Coast and through the, the middle of the country that we've met and we're getting a lot of repeats in the three years we've been here. I've got a lot of customers that we've seen for the second and third time in the time we've been here. That's excellent. And so it's been it's been great. We've met a lot of really good people. Glad to hear that. The the idea is to expand the business here, not necessarily 
open one in Salt Lake City or no that's not really I mean that's it's hard not, enough to run two that's places. not something we've really looked at and, and projected toward it's I've I never had the the thought of expanding beyond where we were at in St. George to be honest with you when the old building got to the point we were looking at remodeling the old building and it was kind of getting to be a race as to whether we remodeled it and got it back in shape or it uh, fell down on us. <laughs> the building was about 70 years old. And like I say, I, I grew up working with my dad there. My f- grandfather and my dad built that building back in 1948-49 and built it for the express interest of making roof tile there. Right. And so it was never designed as a garage. Uh, I don't know if you remember where I had my hoist there. I'd cut the ceiling out and we'd yep. raise the ceiling That's right. to, to get up, to raise them high enough. So we'd had modify the building all over. To, and it wasn't the best working conditions. It wasn't insulated. So in the summer, you couldn't keep it cool or keep it cooled off. And in the winter, you'd freeze your hiney off because you couldn't keep it warm. <laughs> and um, so when it finally come down to the point, uh, we looked at, the first extensive remodel, I had an architect look and a couple of things, and he says, it's going to be like $675,000 to, to remodel it, do the renovation. I'm going, I'm not looking to build a dealership here. I just want to fix the garage. <laughs> and so then we end up tearing the whole thing down and going way beyond what we had initially planned on. Um, so we're just over 13,000 square feet in the other facility. And but to be honest with you, I don't regret it for a minute. It's it, a uh, gorgeous building. The way the layout is, and the the showroom and the shop space and the parking and everything else you got out there. It's I was really impressed when I showed up there a couple of years ago. After, just as you guys were, it was just finishing. There mm-hmm. was part of it that you guys were still working on. Yeah, and, but it was just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it really it really makes a good impression, as does this show, this store, and I think that's I think that's very helpful in our business in in the off road industry. the uh, The businesses that I see that flourish are the ones that are very well organized, very clean. Um, the The guys that struggle are the guys in those one and two bay shops that you know they got all the all their parts you know laying on the floor and just no organization and they're always looking for things. And so they're spending a lot more time. Customers walk in and go, Oh wow, you're going to work on my transmission in this place, you know, or whatever. Having a facility that looks, you know, almost like an operating room really, really does enhance the overall business, I believe. Yeah. Well, it's, we've, we've tried really hard to keep it nice. My wife is a, a clean fanatic you, I don't know if you noticed out front and out back, there's no weeds in the, the area. She goes out every day. She's a weed killer. <laughs> I was great because I hate pulling weeds. <laughs> but she's done it's a, that old farming community. She's thing. done a, a great job of that. But I can't I can't fault the little crowded shops because I was one. No, nope, I understand. I spent my backyard was my parts department. I had more junk and crap out there. My wife always called it my junkyard. I called it inventory or my treasure room. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I nearly cried when we we cleared all that out to do the new building. Uh, and I caught a lot of flack because we took two trailer loads of axles to the salvage yard. Mm. 
Uh, and I got so many people screaming at me over social media, different stuff going, how come you did? It's like, dude, I've had that stuff in the backyard for three or four years. You guys never bought any of it and I can't house it anymore. Exactly. And so making the change has been because of my nature. I'm kind of a collector anyway. We call that hoarding. My parents grew up through the depression, (laughs) so they didn't get rid of much. And, uh, and I've had to overcome a lot of that, but with my wife's help and the kids, they've, you know, they've kept me uh, going pretty good. But every now and again, I just go, oh man, I had one of those. And, you know, now you have to I've, it out I've had to get, get over that. And, but to be honest with you, I'm, I'm glad we've progressed to this point because now it is so much nicer being able to come to work and, you know get on the computer and find my inventory and and do everything else uh there are still some little things i save and and hide aside and (laughs) that we use a lot of i like that hide aside (laughs) and i i do have to hide some of this stuff occasionally but uh every now and again my kids will come dad do you know anywhere there's a you don't happen to have one of those (laughs) so i i still rat hole a few things but um But yeah, it's been, and we've tried to, we've tried over the years to, to build a brand and to, and as we hire people, we, we explain to them, we expect a certain level of work and a certain amount of pride and stuff. And if you're wearing a company shirt, when you go out in public, remember to behave yourself and act accordingly. And so, and we've, we've got a, a good group that, uh, I've been really proud of them. They're all all good friends, and my wife treats them like they're all all her kids. That's awesome. That's that is how you keep people, especially the people you want. You know, that's yeah. uh, that's important. We do the same thing with our racers and rock crawlers. Mm-hmm. You know, every every once in a while, somebody comes into the group. You wish they'd have found something else to do. <laughs> Very few and far between. Yeah, they just right. rub people the wrong way or whatever. And uh, they always find their way out of the of the scene because they're just not welcomed. Yeah. And you know, employees can, are the same way. I, before moving to Cedar City in the nineties, mid nineties, I used to run Sears Automotives. Mm-hmm. And as a, I mean, I started off doing tires and batteries and shocks and exhaust, and then went on, you know, through that, and then ended up as a store manager and. Ran stores that had 128 employees. Well, there was always every store I went into, there was stores that would. I was like, "Why did somebody hire you?" You know. <laughs> and then my job was kind of not to force them out, but you know, make them see the light that they really didn't fit. It's it's difficult without just going, "You're fired, get out of here." Of course, mm-hmm. I've done that too. Yeah, and it's I, difficult. I was going to say some of them will bring it to that point. Yes, and some of them, you can tell some of them. You know, I had a guy that worked for me years ago, and he come in. And he says, "Oh, he says, I love this. I love this. I love this." I said, "Ron, you're a sick man. You'll get over it." And he did. He eventually went out from there and went into more of a, a parts type guy. You know, selling parts instead of actually having to work on get dirty and stuff. Because it it turned out it, it wasn't really in his nature. It was fun, you know, as a hobby a little bit, but to do it every day, he quickly got over that but he realized it we realized it and we're still friends that's awesome um we had a, a marketing guy that 
that worked for us. And he was great. Loved him. Known him for over 20 years. And he didn't leave because it wasn't a good fit or doing his job. He left because he did too good a job. And a big company kept watching his work and come and tried to hire him. We had given him a raise. Uh, and then they come and, and tried to hire him again, but they made him sign a non-disclosure. That he wouldn't tell us what they were paying him. <laughs> but he come. He <laughs> I, was, to, I think I know who that was. <laughs> he was feeling bad. And I says, look, you know what? If this is good for you and it's good for your family, take it. That's the important part. If it's a good move for you, take that job and we'll be fine. We'll get somebody else. And we've got a guy that's part-time now doing a great job for us. And, you know, we're still friends. You know, those are kind of things that just happen. And then, like, say, you get some employees that, like, oh, they really need to go away. And I don't know how this is going to happen without really. It's amazing. People can interview really well. And then you hire them. And within 48 hours of working, you know, okay, this isn't going to work. Yeah. This guy totally, you know. Pulled the wool over my Resume eyes. was a little padded. Yeah, padded or just the personality. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, all well, of a sudden true colors come You out. know, one of the great things I've had, my daughter that's our general manager, Tara. Yeah. She is really good. She's kind of like and, your wife. No nonsense. Yeah. She's she's had to fire some of them, and she'll walk in and take care of it. I mean, she'll make a clean cut if need be. But she had worked for uh, Harmon's in their business department and up in the new city Creek center and, okay. and then down here in St. George and a couple of places. And she learned a lot about corporate law and business and she interviews and everybody that we hire, she requires them to take a personality test. Oh, nice. And there are certain personalities that she will no longer hire. If they, they come up as a certain personality ain't happening. Because she's, she's tracked it, and she knows which personalities work with the others and which ones that we've had. Because I won't tell you which one, but all of our employees that we've had most issues with have all been one personality. And so she's done a, a really good job of, of tracking through all that. That's great. I'll bet there's people that would love, business owners that would love to have her program. It, uh, she would tell them what it is if if they talked to her. Oh, huh, okay. And, well, everybody's uh, heard that. Call Tara. <laughs> <laughs> she may shoot me, but yeah. But like I say, it's uh, she's found it to be very, very successful. Works very well. At least has done for us. That's great. So, is there anything in your history? Well, let's talk some more about about off road. You and I met through the clubs as color country. We brought help bring in Arca and Ranch Pratt mm-hmm. to Cedar City. They put a call out for judges, being that we were the club was working with Ranch to try to facilitate and help him do what he needed to get done, and you know, including you know BLM and all that kind uh-huh. of stuff. It was before Three Peaks became a county park. I put the call out to the rebels, and wasn't it yours? Dixie Off-Road, wasn't that the other club that was down there? What was it? Well, it was Rebels Four-Wheel Drive. Oh, it was Rebels. Yeah. Okay. I was a trip director for the Rebels Club. And so I put the call out to you guys, and I think, I mean, there was like 20, 30 of you guys all showed up and to help out with that event. And a lot of you guys stayed for years. Yeah, there was, I think there was 14 of us. 
that traveled the circuit for most of five years. Yeah. That, and when uh, I started Cal Rocks, when I, I moved out of Cedar City in 2000 and then did my first event in 2001, I was like, oh, man, I wish I had you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but too far away. How did you... Uh, how did you like that part of it, the competition scene? And you know, I really enjoyed it. It, um, I remember the the first event up in Cedar. I think it was Phil Collard, wasn't he? The trip there, the course director. Yep. And uh, he uh, he was a lot of fun. And I remember uh, going up there and walking the course with him the first day and everything. And uh, that was the up there when we walked the course the first time was the day I broke my ankle. Oh, was it? And I didn't know I broke it. I was wearing cowboy boots when we walked the course, and I jumped over a spot, and I heard my ankle pop and thought, I've promised these guys the next two days. And so we worked the the course. I'd forgotten all about that. And And, uh, so I I thought I'd just sprained it because after a month or two, I finally got back to where I was feeling all right. It uh, was just a few years back that I actually had it x-rayed and found out I'd broke it in three places. Oh, wow. But you never, it just refused it's, itself. And it's fused and it's, it is what it is. It'll never be right. <laughs> You're not going to go but, out and play basketball. Uh, right? No, I don't run anymore. I can still hike and I can still Jeep. <laughs> That's awesome. And but, hiking is only when the Jeep breaks down? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I do enjoy hiking and I did a lot of it when we were laying out trails before. Right. And so I like to hike them before and, and get a good look at them and then and start driving them. But but yeah, the uh, the early days of ARCA, I loved it. They were so much fun because we'd have people come and compete that were in their daily drivers. The Jeep they were driving to work every day. I still remember one guy in an XJ broke down in my obstacle. He's on his phone. He is timed out. I'm going, you got to move. <laughs> we got to get you off of here. He's on his phone with his wife trying to find parts for her Cherokee that she doesn't know he's got and competing in. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he caught what for when he got home. But those days were great because, I mean, they were driving almost stock outfits and competing. Especially and, that first year. And, yeah, it was it was fun. It was really cool to watch and and then to watch the progression of the sport and the equipment was really fun. Over those five years, it, it, yeah, it, it was incredible. It, the, the growth on it was phenomenal and the ingenious ideas they started coming up with. I'm trying to think if it was Neil Lillard or who it was toward the end was working on a extendable wheelbase. Uh, Sounds we, like something Neil would do. We had talked about that, and I said, you know, in some of these places, long wheelbase is a detriment. In other places, it's a huge bonus. And there's nothing in the rule book that says you can't do it. And uh, I remember Tiny and his uh, moon buggy uh, broke down in one of my obstacles. It wouldn't run, wouldn't start up. And um, then they timed out, and we had to get him off the course. And he says, well, it won't run. I says, grab your spotter, have him pour his water bottle over that fuel pump. It'll start up. <laughs> Poured it over the fuel pump, fired right up. He says, why didn't you tell me that before? I said, you were on the clock. Exactly. <laughs> I said, I can't be helping you on the clock. I said, but I can help you get off the course. And I says, I can tell you, if you put that 
pump in a submersible fuel cell so it's cooled, you won't have that problem. You know, different things, but, you know, I wouldn't help them on the clock because, you know, it wouldn't be fair. But That's I'd awesome. sure share with them after the fact. But, uh, but yeah, we met some some great people that we still see. Uh, you know, Shannon Campbell was always such a show. And whenever he's up in Moab, he's always stopped by and, and always gives my wife a hug. And, they're, you know, he's great. Uh, Chris Durham from out in the Carolinas. Oh, yeah. We see him periodically. Uh, that was one of the things bunches with, of them with this year with COVID and losing the Red Rock four-wheel drive Easter Jeep Safari. Yeah. It's, you know, that's when I get to see all those guys. Yeah. It was kind in of fact, a Danny Grimes thing. said to say hello because uh, that's where we're staying right now. Yeah. Well, I see Danny pretty regularly. Yes. He does come down. He gets bored. He can show him. Goes, I'm bored out of my mind. I got to talk to somebody. Exactly. <laughs> so he'll come in and he'll hang out. You know, sit. You know, a bay away or something, and we'll visit while I'm working or something. And and uh, so we visit and uh, have a chance to talk. But uh, yeah, because he was but, back there in the day. He was uh, like crew chief for Chris Durham. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how I met him. Was at our first event when Chris showed up. Mm-hmm. A couple of those guys with. Old Dave Knight, who there's a whole lot of people would like to see Dave Knight again, but yeah, for a different reason. <laughs> Dave, if you ever hear this, do not show up around a rock crawl or anybody that used to rock crawl because they all got their name on a, on a piece of lead, probably, or at the end of a hammer. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wouldn't end well. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. It, uh, but yeah, the the early days of the Arca were were a lot of fun. Remember Chris winning that first year. Yes. And uh, with a junkyard built buggy and a carburetor mounted backwards. <laughs> I remember at Donner Ski Ranch, and this was probably 2003, 2000, yeah, 2003, 2004. We were still running under, under Cal Rocks. And he and I were sitting there talking in the uh, restaurant slash bar at the ski resort. And he goes, you know, Rich, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever win again. I think the sport's gone past me. And I said, Chris, don't worry about it. You will win again. And he won that event. Uh-huh. And he came back. I mean, on the second day, he came back from being way down and did and and won. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, How did you know? I said, Because you're Chris Durham. <laughs> you know, it's just the way it is. It's you're Chris Durham. It's that's that's what happens. So yeah, he he was one of my favorite drivers. Still is still is a great guy and shows up here mm-hmm. every year. It stays at Danny, yeah. so I get to see him there. And uh, Shannon, I don't know if you heard, but Shannon's youngest child, Bailey, is just announced that she's pregnant. Oh, I hadn't and, heard that yet. Yeah, um, she married Brian Crofts, uh-huh. and they're uh, they're they're expecting now. Well, so cool. that's awesome. Great. That's going to cut into her racing. Yeah, I was going to say that might slow her down for a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be at least a season, I would think. That, yeah. Uh, that she's going to this way. Brian now has a chance to beat her. <laughs> <laughs> but I still think Bailey will be the first female winner of KOH, uh-huh. the King of the Hammers. That'll be I, cool. I thought she was going to do it this year. She was leading, and then the. The water pump pulley went out on mm-hmm. her, or the idler pulley or something. Yeah. And uh, Shannon found out, brought was in the pits, brought out a, pe- a part for her, and they got back running. And she was able to finish, I believe. But, uh, yeah, it was 
we were all rooting for mm-hmm. everybody that was online and we were driving across the country, I think, or on our way to Arizona from the event mm-hmm. and uh, cheering her on. But yeah, it's good to, it's great to see the second generation starting to come through. Yeah. You know, Bryce, you know, running the company, him and your daughter. Mm-hmm. And then my son is now running Trail Hero, mm-hmm. you know, which is turning into yeah. a pretty big event out there. Yeah. And so it's really kind of cool to watch the second generation come through. You know, I, I interviewed George Schultz from Red Rock Wheelers because his dad was the one that started that here mm-hmm. and took it over from the Chamber of Commerce or the city that was running uh-huh. Easter Jeep. So, you know, it's it's just, it's kind of cool to see that this sport has longevity yeah. with with the second and third generations. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Uh, it appeals to so many, and uh, we're starting to see a lot more women getting involved in driving and really enjoying it. Yes, and um, we're that's one of the things that we do is we we help out with the Rebel Rally, mm-hmm. which is the all women's navigational challenge goes from Tahoe through Nevada and California, all map and compass, and mm-hmm. finishes up in. In you know, almost on the border, and uh, it's an eight day affair for the girls, and we're on the we're on there out there for about twelve. But it's uh, it's an awesome event to watch these women that uh, some of them have no experience off road at all, mm-hmm. but they're gung ho to go out and do this. And luckily, the you know, it's not they're not doing any rock crawling or anything like mm-hmm. that. They're basically on roads and some washes. Just watching them overcome a lot of fears, mm-hmm. overcoming the things that happen to them because they don't have their support group. Mm-hmm. You know, their boyfriends and, or husbands or whatever aren't with them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, they flatten two tires. Well, they got two spares. Oh, we just learned last week how to change a tire, you know, and they get them changed. Mm-hmm. And they're thrilled. Yeah. You know, it's just fun to be around. And it's, it's great to see women get really involved with the sport. Well, great. I would like to thank you for coming on board and, and with Conversations with Big Rich. And yep, you're telling, welcome. Sharing your history with our listeners. You know, thank you for being a friend for so many years. I know there was a long time there where we didn't see each other. Yeah, I was going to say. I never got to St. George very often. Yeah. And, and then, uh, uh, and then we, we were able to come by, I guess it was about five years ago. It was the first year of Trail Hero mm-hmm. that... Uh, I had put some tires on that were too big, and I needed my bumpers and rock sliders trimmed up a little bit. Trimmed up, and you got the saws all out and opened them up, and those tires fit great. Now I still <laughs> run those those bigger tires. Yeah, good, and haven't done anything else. I never. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it's awesome. So I really appreciate the years of of friendship and uh, everything that that you've done. You're one of those uh, unsung heroes in off-road, I believe. You know, the drivers and big company owners are these guys that everybody, you know, gets to see all the time on social media and and on video and everything. And it's guys like you that, you know, were around at the very beginning of the sport competitive scene and opening trails in areas that that people now enjoy as a recreational area when it wasn't a recreational area. You know, you're one of those kind of people that I that I'm trying to reach with the history, so that the people coming into the sport now actually understand how it got to where it's at, 
And I want to thank you for your friendship over the years for doing that. So uh, You're welcome. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. All right, Milton. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.